0: All right the book of philippians please the book of philippians we began a review as to where we've been in the book of philippians and of course we're trying to get to chapter number 3 we could have just dove right in to chapter 3 and looked at the first few verses of chapter 3 but we started a review just as a reminder of the ground we've covered in the book of philippians before we went outdoors Um, and omitted our Wednesday evening services, we had just completed chapter 2. Of course, last Wednesday evening, if you'll make your way to chapter 1, we'll start there and pick up where we left off in our review. We didn't cover everything in the introduction. We won't cover everything as we look at some of the snippets of the various passages we have covered in the first two chapters. But we do want to mention just a thing or two along the way. The book of Philippians, of course, among other things, is known as the epistle of joy. And we learn that we can have joy no matter what we face. Paul is a prisoner of Rome as he pins down the epistle known as the book of Philippians. And if anyone had, I guess, a, 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 a ground that he can complain on, it's Paul, but he doesn't do so. Though he's bound, you remember we said he's free. He's free. They had not broke his mind, nor had they broke his spirit. Um, If he is to be bound, uh, that's all right. He, of course, we learned in chapter number 1, if you'll remember, getting a little ahead of myself, verses 12 to 19, that you would have thought that his labor would have ceased. But God just put a pen in his hand, is what he did. Not only that, he allowed him, and I'll say just a brief word about this in our review tonight, He also allowed Paul and inroad to witness to the household of Caesar. They had no idea when the guards would come in and change shifts every six hours, would be handcuffed to the little Baptist preacher. They had no idea that the man that looked so unimposing, that that, uh, the Spirit of God was enrolling them in theology 101. And I've often staged it in my mind. I can almost see. A man comes in and he shackles himself to the apostle. And he probably, if he'd have been living in our day, would have brought a copy of the commercial appeal. Popped it out before him, begin reading and drinking his coffee in the morning. And Paul probably would have said, have you ever heard that the steps of a righteous man are ordered by the Lord? He'd probably said, I don't have any idea what you're talking about. What's your name? My name's Bob. Bob, you will know before this thing's over with, because I'm going to tell you about Jesus and the day he saved my soul. There were many that were saved in Caesar's household. As a matter of fact, in the writing of the book of Philippians, before you get out of chapter number 4, he's not going to call names. He's going to just simply say, they of Caesar's household salute thee. But what he's saying is, Bob said, tell y'all hello. He may not get to meet you over here, but he'll meet you over there, and he'll tell you he's the one that was shackled to me, Bob. Bob said, hello. It's amazing how God can take a witness. Paul is our New Testament theologian, right? And we've got other characters and personalities in the New Testament. It's amazing how God uses each individual right where they are to be a witness for his darling son. And we rejoice in that. But Philippians is the book of joy, uh, the epistle of joy. Of course, we said last week that the book of Philippians has a jailhouse testimony. Remember, Paul got thrown in jail. The Philippian jailer gets saved. His family gets saved. He's got a jailhouse testimony. Now, 10 years later, after planting the church at Philippi, Paul writes this letter to them. And so it's got a two-fold jailhouse testimony. It's got a riverbank testimony. It's got a prayer meeting testimony born out of a, a prayer meeting on a riverbank. I believe the key verse of the book of Philippians, not everybody believes this. Some people are wrong, you know. Philippians four, verse number four: Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. Uh, if you have, and I'm sure there are various study Bibles that are placed around the congregation tonight. Your study Bible, Ryrie might say one thing. Um, uh, maybe Schofield. He would, if he has key verses. I don't think he does. I haven't looked at his notes in some years now, but he might think it's chapter one, verse twenty one. A lot of writers do. And, uh, but I personally believe because of the note of joy being struck so many times throughout this epistle, that chapter 4, verse number 4 is our uh, key verse. We, we closed last uh, Wednesday evening by talking about Paul's heart. You remember that? Chapter 1, verse 7, he's got a pastor's heart. Uh, chapter 1, verse 12, his heart is not filled with envy. Uh, chapter number 1, verse number 21, his heart is filled with Christ. Uh, in chapter 1, verse 21, also his heart is fixed on heaven. He said, for to me to live is Christ. Paul, what, what are you about? He said, that's easy. For to me to live is Christ. Uh, let me see if I can find the quote. Brother Ken Trivett said about this statement in chapter 1, verse 21, for to me to live is Christ. Brother Ken said this. He said, I don't know of a greater statement found in all the word of God than this inspired statement. For to me to live is Christ. Then he says, but to die is gain. So you can't threaten a man with heaven that has his heart fixed the way Paul has his heart fixed. Um, Let me mention another way or two you can find Paul. Maybe you'd underline these verses, and jot a thought or two down. But Paul is presented in each chapter with a little bit different emphasis. In chapter number one, he's Paul the prisoner. You remember, we said that this is a prison epistle of Paul's. There were four he pinned down. There was uh, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, they're right there together. Then the little book of Philemon, which is a beautiful book in the New Testament, uh, where we see the doctrine of propitiation taught, where Christ not only paid the debt at the moment of our salvation, but he paid every debt that we would incur thereon, thereafter. And we rejoice in that. Brother Chris sure took interest in the book of Philemon back a couple of years ago. It thrilled my heart that he was interested in that book. Most people just overlook that little one-chapter epistle. But he's Paul the prisoner. Paul the prisoner in chapter number 1. Four times you'll find a phrase. Perhaps you would underline this. I have this phrase circled in chapter number 1. Four times you'll find this phrase. Chapter 1, verse 7, which speaks to his being a prisoner. There's some emphasis placed on this in chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 7, "...even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, watch this, inasmuch as both in my bonds..." I have that phrase, my bonds, those two words circled. And verse number 7, he's talking about his being a prisoner of Rome. Verse number 13, he uses uses the two words again. He says, "...so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places." Chapter 1, verse number 14, and many of the brethren in the Lord waxing confident by, here it is again, my bonds, speaks to his being a prisoner. And then verse number 16, the last two words of verse number 16, he speaks of my bonds. He's Paul the prisoner. Chapter number 2, he is Paul the preacher. Paul the preacher. You can tell a lot about us by what we do with Jesus Christ. I remember the first night I... uh, We either did two or three nights of introduction to the book of Philippians when we introduced the book. And and I remember the first night, Brother Jay and his wife Katie, of course, maybe Joe's been born since then. He's gone off to pastor. But I remember making the statement that Paul, I I love his Bible vocabulary, don't you? You won't go very many words, phrases, or verses until he mentions Jesus, Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus our Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord. Well, in chapter 2, he mentions Jesus Christ is Lord. I've preached on that phrase, I guess, 30, 35 times more over the years. I know I have one time a year uh, ever since I've been preaching. I've been fascinated. Most uh, Bible writers believe it's one of the most profound uh, passages of Scripture in all the Word of God. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of man. And going through verse number 11, you find that, um, that you, you have the, the, the round trip, right? You start out in the heavenlies with Christ, verse 6. You come down to the heart of the Christmas story, verses 7 and 8. Then you're back into the heavenlies, seated at the right hand of the Father, looking upon Christ Christ who receives all honor and glory, verses 9 through 11. So Paul the preacher, uh, you can tell a lot by a preacher, by what he does with Jesus. Where is his emphasis? Is it upon himself? Is it upon his feelings? Is it upon politics? Um, Where is his emphasis? Does he point people to Christ? Now the Bible is full of different emphases, but ultimately... They all lead us to Christ, right? Every principle in the Bible points us to Jesus Christ. The Bible is about Christ. Um, the shortest chapter in the Bible is Psalm 117. The longest chapter in the Bible is Psalm 119. The middle chapter of the Bible is Psalm 118. The middle phrase is the Lord. The Bible begins with the most God-centered chapter in all the Bible, Genesis chapter number 1. Forty-some-odd times God is either mentioned... By direct mention or in personal pronoun or reference. Forty some odd times. It's the most God-centered chapter. Sometimes you'll come up on somebody that'll say, prove to me there's a God. You say you're a child of God. You say you've been born again. Prove to me there's a God. I can't prove to you there's a God. The Holy Spirit himself never attempted to do such of a thing. I can prove to me there's a God. I know where I was when he found me. I know the change he made in my life. I can prove to me there's a God. One of our ladies was talking to me on the front about uh, just the tenderness of her heart and what God has done in every day of her life now. It's just different. just different. Um, Paul, the preacher. There's Paul, the prospector, in chapter number 3. Of course, if you'll look at verse number 9, you'll find that Christ is the object of his faith. Verse number 9, be found in him. I remember asking Brother Don Smith once, what does it mean to be in Christ? This is what he did. He didn't say anything. He went. I like that. Old black preacher said one time, said, uh, the devil tries to get after you, you know. He said, but in order to get your soul, he said, he'd have to pry the great hand of the father back. And he'd have to break the, spe- the, the, the seal of the Holy Spirit. Then he'd have to swim through all that blood of Christ. said he'd be a saved devil if he ever got that far. In verse number 10, you'll find that Christ is the object of his focus. Watch what he says. Now, this is 30 years. This is 10 years after the founding of the church at Philippi. That he writes the book of Philippians 30 years after his salvation, his personal salvation experience. Watch how he starts verse number 10 of chapter number uh, 3. He writes that I may know him. That I may know him. It means that I may know him more intimately, more personally. That I may know him, experience him, love him in a way that I've never loved him before. This is the great apostle Paul. He's Paul the prospector. And then in the latter part of uh, this chapter, of course, his final ambition is to see Christ, to be like Christ, to see Christ. If, um, if we do, as the New Testament admonishes us, if we walk in the Spirit, the Bible tells us that's how we do not fulfill the lust of the flesh, right? There is a way to overcome sin in your life, child of God. Walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That's in Galatians 5. In Ephesians 5, we're given a command. Be filled with the Spirit. The tense of the writing is, be ye being filled constantly. Brother Harvey Reeves says the command is there because we leak. Being filled with the Spirit means to be led by, dominated, to be filled with the Spirit One dear brother, many years ago, I heard him say it like this. It's not that we get more of him, but he gets more of us. If we're filled with the Spirit of God, then we'll be like Paul. Even when we are imprisoned, Um, we will be prospectors. I love that old hymn, don't you? I want to know more about my Jesus. I want to know more about my Lord. I want to know more about that homeland. I want to know more. Paul says, I want to know more. He says, I want to know more. And if we are submitted to, yielded to, and that's your key to being filled with the Spirit, being yielded to, being sensitive to, he has right of way in my life. You can grieve the Holy Spirit. You can quench the Holy Spirit. To grieve someone, and never will forget, my mom took me um, to Jack Ezell's office after three days of vacation. He who has ears to ear; let him hear. And Jack Ezell was the vice principal. And I never will forget. My mama said, "said Look, I think he needs a paddling too." Not just three days. I think he needs a paddling too. And I'm telling you, he lit my world up. And I never will forget, this hurt my heart, and it should have. This is what my mama said. She said, Mr. Ezell, I ain't proud of what he did. But I love him. I'm sorry for what he did. I grieve my mom. To grieve somebody, you can anger your neighbor, but you only grieve those who love you. Can you imagine the great Holy Spirit? Can he grieved by you and me? Jesus, you remember, he said about the Holy Spirit, he said when he has come, he will approve the world of sin, of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because they believe not on me, of righteousness because they go to my Father. And you see me no more of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. Then he goes on down and he says that he shall take of mine, shall show it unto you. He shall guide you into all truth. He used this phrase, he said, He shall speak of me. He shall take of mine and show it unto you. He shall speak of me. What grieves him is when we are so unchrist-like. The Holy Spirit so loves Jesus he wrote a book about him. He so loves Jesus, he calls men, women, boys, and girls red, yellow, black, and white. To come to Jesus. And he so loves Jesus, he's so in love with Jesus, that when we come to him, those who do come to him, he talks us into trying to look as much like him as we can. Paul must be filled with the Holy Spirit. He's prospecting, it ain't gold he's after, he ain't singing fire on the mountain. But he's hunting God. In chapter number 4, he's Paul at peace. We love these verses, don't we? Verse 7, and the peace of God. Describe to me the peace of God tonight. You can't. You describe the peace of God, and then you feel like you didn't describe the peace of God. You talk about the peace of God, but then you feel like, I didn't say anything about the peace of God. You think you make yourself clear when describing the peace of God, and you walk away feeling like... Didn't make myself clear. The peace of God's about like, uh, describing it's about like somebody said, about like describing the grace of God said it's about like trying to hug a mountain. You can't get it done. But I sure am a priest for the peace of God. There have been times in my life where there was turmoil all about me. And this verse I'm fixing to read to you, I'd pray this verse, and I'd say, all right, God, this is what you said, not what I said. I think rest in your peace. There's something about taking God at his word that he honors. Look at verse 7. Chapter 4. And the peace of God which passeth all understanding. Have you ever, I bet Misty, I bet you have. Been in hospice care as long as you have been. I would just imagine there have been times some saint has been struggling and suffering and weak in body. And yet the peace of God, if you had asked them to give you a definition, they couldn't describe. The peace of God passeth all understanding. Only a Christian can experience that. Can I get a witness? We are hid in Christ. The world don't understand us. They didn't understand him. And let's be honest. Let's just get right down below the surface. We say we ought to live in such a way they see Jesus in us. But now the world, listen to me, they didn't see Jesus in Jesus. We're hid in Christ. They didn't understand him. They ain't gonna understand you. I'm glad there's a peace this world. Now, they can know it. They choose not to know it. Have you ever faced something and someone asks you how you making it? I remember a man stopping by one day through the week. and He said, preacher, he said, how? I said, I don't know. Other than God's all I can tell you. Watch this, verse 7. And the peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. That word keep means to superintend or to rule the peace of God. The peace of God. Does the peace of God rule your heart and mind? I remember the first time being on an airplane and hitting bad turbulence landing. It unnerved me. It upset me, to be honest with you. But I was with a preacher friend, and he's an experienced uh, flyer. He just kept reading. He never looked up. Keep reading your Bible, child of God. Keep learning about God. Keep learning about your Savior. Keep learning about the Holy Spirit. Keep learning about what God's done for his people. Keep learning the principles of how to live. The peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. We're not going to get through the review. I I hope maybe what we don't get through, just use it as an introduction. It just depends on how quick you listen from here on. I always put that on you, but that's on me, isn't it? That's on me. Let's take some snippets from... The passages as we divided them in chapter number 1. I think I've been true to the dividing of the chapters. I think I have. Other than right at the outset, the first two verses of the book of Philippians are your greeting. That's the natural greeting to the book. But we included verse 1 through verse 8, and we talked about fond memories of a faithful church. I have fond memories of a faithful church. Matter of fact, while we were going through that, I preached three or four revivals right in that time, and I preached what we went through in chapter number one in all of those revivals. And I made mention—I don't know if you all remember or not—but I made mention. Uh, never will forget. I, I I paused that night and I asked some of you. I, I, I mentioned the church that I quite often mentioned that has meant much to me over the years. I have fond memories of a faithful church from many years ago. You've heard me mention some of them by name. I never will forget, Donald, I I called on you. You've been in a lot of churches singing, and and you said Sarepta Baptist Church. And there were others I called on. I asked, what about a church? And you gave, gave me a church. Some of the preachers that were here, we asked them. There were four or five, Brother Chris, we asked you. The young folk that are here ought to have fond memories of a faithful church. A lot of what I am today, and I know I'm lacking in a lot of areas, but a lot of what I am was shaped in my heart and life and mind. Uh, those those two-plus years, I was at and Baptist Church almost three years. We had some business meetings. It could have been handled differently. We had some feelings. It could have been... Kept to themselves. We had things just like any other church. But I never did let that get to me. Never. I tried my best to focus on the principle that I was being taught. And I've run off that for years. Gabe May, if he is taken to the southern tip of the continent of Africa, he ought to be reminded in his mind the heart on occasion I got a church family back home in Mississippi that loves me and prays for me. They're the real deal. Fond memories of a faithful church. In verse number three of chapter number one, there was Paul's grateful recollection of the believers at Philippi. That verse says, We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ praying always for you. Grateful recollections of the believers in Philippi. In verse number four, Paul's prayerful petitions for the believers in Philippi. Verse number four, he writes, "Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have to all the saints." In verse three, he says, "I got you on my mind." In verse number four, he says, "I have you in my prayers." And then down, if you'll skip to verses 7 and 8, you'll find Paul's deep affection for the believers in Philippi. Verse 3, he says, I have you on my mind. Verse number 4, he says, I have you in my prayers. Verse number 7, and in verse 8, but primarily verse number 7, he says, I have you in my heart. Just snippets as we looked at fond memories of a faithful church in Paul's life. Let me give you about 10 minutes more. Chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, he told us in verse 4, he told us in verse number 4 that he was praying for the believers at Philippi. And in verses 9 through 11, there's Paul's prayer for them. He says, I'm praying for you, verse number 4, verses 9, 10, and 11. He says, now, let me tell you how I'm praying for you. And let me ask you tonight, are you praying for anybody like Paul prayed for these believers? Number one, he, pr- he prays in verse number 9 for a love that abounds. Watch him in verse number 9. And, and, and again, let me ask you. Are you are you praying? Now, I was reading from Colossians chapter 1 a while ago. I'm sorry. He said, he said look at uh, verse number 9. In verse number 9, he says, in Philippians 1, verse number 9, he says, In this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. A love that abounds. Do you pray that for anybody? That the love of Christ so be poured in to your husband's life or your wife's life or your children's life, or your church family's life, that it's so poured in that it spills out and abounds. The idea of that is a bucket under a waterfall of any magnitude, and the water is pouring into that bucket, and it long, many yesterdays has filled and has been ever since overfilling. And traveling further. George Duncan uh, likened it. He said this and almost said what he said. He said, it is a picture of a bucket standing under a streamlet with water pouring out on every side, overflowing to others. In verse number 10, he prays for a wisdom that is profitable. Verse number 10, he says that you may approve. There's your word, profitable. That you may approve things that are excellent. He didn't say that you may approve things that are good or better. But he said, excellent. That word approved carries with it the idea of scent. In the Old Testament, scent is a, is a picture of discernment. And he says, I, I want you to discern the good from the bad, but, but I want you to discern better from the good, and I want you to discern, discern what's best from what's maybe better. He says, I want you to see more than today. I want you to see tomorrow. I want you to consider your actions, not just today, but how they're going to affect others tomorrow, and you as well. He says that you may approve things that are excellent. And then he prays for them in verse number 10 and 11. He prays that they live a life that is honorable. I, I... I have never, in all these years of pastoring and taking prayer requests, I've never heard anybody say, "Preacher, I I, I just I have a request. Would you pray for me that the love of Christ would abound in my life?" I don't think I've ever had anybody hold their hand up and say, "Preacher, would would could I ask the church to pray for me that I have a wisdom that is profitable?" Solomon asked had one request. He didn't ask for money or riches or but he asked for wisdom. The Bible says that David behaved himself wisely and God was with him. And the Bible says if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. I'm asking God for wisdom. And I'm asking you all to pray that God give me wisdom. And never, never had anybody, never had anybody speak up and say, Preacher, would you all pray for me that I live a life that's honorable to Christ? But Paul's praying this for the believers at Philippi. I've got six minutes. I'm going to hold true to my word. You remember we moved to Philippians 1, verses 12 to 19, and we noticed the things that happened unto Paul. The things that happened unto Paul. What happened to him happened to him because of preachers. He's in prison, and, and preachers take advantage of his being imprisoned and take shots at him. You remember we talked about one or two of the words and how it means to canvass the community. Some indeed preach Christ out of contention. Means to means to campaign throughout the community. You, you want the vote of others. Why, I mentioned Brother Scotty Bland uh, that's down 341, Pastor down 341. Why would, on God's green earth, if I disagreed with him, why would I get in this pulpit or any other pulpit and call his name in a negative way Why would I do that preacher that way? Do you know that goes on all the time in the ministry? It means to canvas, try to get support. To try to block somebody, veto, to try to push them out of the way that we may be in the way. You remember Solomon taught a principle in the book of uh, Proverbs, again paraphrasing. But he basically said, son, when you walk into a place... And there's a number of people. Don't go down front and sit down like you think you're somebody. He said, What if the owner of the home, what if he comes out and asks you to get up and go to the back? he will burst your bubble. And he said, Son, you slip in, sit on the back, and if the master of the house bids you come down front, then you've been elevated. They said, Don't ever be lifted up with pride and push your way to the front. You let God do the pushing. God promotes a man, there's nothing you can do about it. If God promotes a man, there's nothing I want to do about it except fan the flame. But you'll remember in chapter number 1, verses 12 to 19, they were the things that happened unto Paul. As a matter of fact, we started that night with Romans 8 and 28. It's amazing how many times I've quoted from that uh, verse over the last two and a half, three years. Paul learns that not everybody's his friend. Your friends are people. You remember when we were in Psalm number one last year out on the parking lot, we dealt with are basically three spheres of what we call friends. There's a close circle. There won't be, but very, just very few people who make it into that inner circle. They'll be your confidants. Uh, they can rebuke you. You'll take it. You You understand it. There'll be times that you'll allow somebody into that inner circle. There'll be times in your life, young folk, you'll have to take somebody and move them from the inner circle to an outer circle. And it'll hurt you to have to do that. And then there's a little closer association, right? You'll see these people. You'll work with them. I think we illustrate it like this on the parking lot. They become your, your mission field, part of your mission field. You, you'll witness to them. You go to school with them. You, you'll come here on a Wednesday night and say, "Preacher, pray for, uh, pray for Betty." Uh, I, I work with her. She works in the same department, and she's and her family is going through something right now. I want you to pray for Betty tonight. And then there'll be people that's on an outer. Um, they, they won't hold such prominent prominence nor influence in your life, right? We often call them friends, but the true definition of it, they're they're not. Your friends can help you to become something that you're not, but your enemies will take you further than that. And we learned that in Philippians 1, 12 to 19. Paul said, he said, I don't care if they are blasting me from their pulpits. He said, if Christ is preached, that's what the Holy Ghost is take news." Uh, When when preaching a few weeks back in revival, each night after the service, each night we went to one of the local restaurants in in the town of Taylorsville. And every night there were preachers that went. There were two of us preachers preached each night, Brother Stacy Lane and myself. And we've had the privilege the last three or four years, two or three times a year, of preaching together. And we both have talked about what joy it brings to us. He's become a dear friend the last eight or ten years of my life. I've known him since the 90s. But uh, I preached through Esther uh, the week, those five nights. I preached through Esther. One night I was talking about Haman and how God can use a Haman in your life. Believe it or not, God can use a Haman. And, and I mentioned how that um, if you'll learn to overcome in the presence of Haman, you will have learned a valuable lesson. And a Haman will become a grace builder in your life. Cody Bullman, pastors in the Morganton area, we were at the Mexican place. We went there two nights. We were at the Mexican place. I believe it was on Wednesday night after the service. Maybe it's Tuesday night. And he said, preacher, he said that helped me tonight. I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, he said there's somebody in the church. And I won't give the details, but he said, uh, he, he said, really, I wanted to just go after them. And he said, this, he said, the Holy Spirit just seemingly restrains me every service. He said, I, I'll be studying. I'm thinking about that one individual. But he said, you know, he said, if I am what I'm supposed to be, I'll let God take that person and build grace into my heart. And I'll learn to love them like I love everybody else in our church. And he said, preacher, God help me tonight. That message was for me. Happy day when you can stand in somebody's presence that grit their teeth in yours. And in your heart say, Jesus, help me love him or love her like you love them. Help me see them like you see them. It's amazing how you can change your heart. Well, in that passage, passage, um, and I'm going to close. There was the uncomfortable things that Paul faced there was the uninterrupted labor of Paul's service. Here's what God did through Paul and his imprisonment. Folk thought they would take shots at him while they had him in prison, while, he's, while the Romans have him. He's under the Roman rule. And those preachers were taking shots and tearing him down. But here's what God did. Uh, if I don't make myself a note, we'll go over every bit of this again next Wednesday. You won't want to do that, will you? But here's what God did. Number one, God did a work of reaching others with the gospel while Paul was in prison. Number two, God did a work of encouraging others through the sufferings of Paul. The common man was much more bold to speak for Christ because Paul was bold enough to stand even though it meant being in prison. And then God did a work of strengthening Paul in the midst of his trials. And God would do that for you and I tonight. He'll strengthen us through our trials. We must be responsible, and we must take our case to the Lord and then respond to him as he bids us with truth and submit to him.